Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, Desiring the Kingdom, a study of the books of First and Second Kings. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings chapter 24. 2 Kings chapter 24. So for the past several months, we've been on a journey through the books of First and Second Kings. What we like to do here at Whitefields, we love to study through books of the Bible. And so this is kind of a large undertaking, right? But it's, it's also a section of scripture that, that I think doesn't get enough airtime as it deserves. But we've been studying through First and Second Kings, and today we come to the end of the book of Second Kings. And the way it ends is really encouraging. I can't wait to share this with you guys. So please open with me in your Bibles to Second Kings chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at the last two chapters. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to us. Thank you, Lord, that you are a father who loves us. Lord, sometimes we desire that you would be a genie who gives us what we want, but thank you that instead of a genie, you are a father who loves us and cares for us. And so, Lord, we want to embrace your fatherly instruction, your fatherly guidance, and your fatherly love for us. And we pray, Lord, as we hear your word, that you would work through it in our hearts and our minds and do a transforming work by your spirit in our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was at the end of a very long day, and we were all very tired and very hungry. So we went to a restaurant for dinner. We settled into a booth, and we began looking over the menu. We placed our order, and after a while, of course, they brought our food, and we began to eat. And that's when it happened. The kids just snapped, right? Like one of them took food off of another one's plate, and that led to a shove which led to a push, which was even harder than the original shove. And then they started kind of shouting at each other. And in all of the pushing and shoving and shouting, someone's drink got knocked over all over the table. It was a huge mess. It was terrible. The little ones started crying. And as a father, I knew what I needed to do. I jumped out of the booth and I grabbed those kids by the arm and I dragged them out of that restaurant. I dragged them outside and I gave them a quick but controlled SWAT on the seat of learning, if you will, as well as a very stern lecture. And I told them, this behavior is unacceptable. And as a result of them acting so badly in that restaurant, they had lost all of their privileges. Well, the fight stopped. We went back inside the restaurant. We sat down. And I felt good about myself, like I really did my duty as a father. That is until the police showed up and the police officers, they, they pulled me aside and they questioned me and then they arrested me because apparently you're not allowed to discipline other people's children. You see, these children, they weren't my children. My children don't behave like that. No, these are, these are, these are the, the kids of the people sitting two tables away to be behaving terribly. But as it turns out, you're not allowed to discipline other people's children. Now, before I go any further, I'll just tell you that's not a true story. If it was, I wouldn't be here today. My wife would have probably killed me by now. Um, but just so you know, that didn't actually happen. I would never do that. And you know why I would never do that is because this illustrates a very basic principle, which is this. A father disciplines his own kids, not somebody else's kids. 
A father disciplines his own kids, not somebody else's kids. And the Bible tells us that, that is true when it comes to God as well. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say that one of the ways that you can know that you really are a child of God is if God's loving discipline is present in your life. Why? Because a father disciplines his own kids, not somebody else's kids. Just think about that. One of the questions that people often ask about God is, how can I know if God really loves me? With all the things I've done, how can I know that God still loves me? And one of the answers the Bible gives us is that one of the greatest proofs, one of the greatest evidences that God loves you, that you really are his child, is that he will lovingly discipline you because a father disciplines his own kids, not somebody else's kids. Now, what does that mean that God disciplines us? I mean, like, what does that look like in all practicality, like on a, on a midweek day, right? Like, what does that look like in your everyday life? We're going to talk about that today as we come to the conclusion of the book of 2 Kings. The title of today's message is The Love of a Father. And here's what we're going to see here in our study of 2 Kings 24 and 25. What we're going to see is this. Here's our takeaway truth, our summary sentence. Here's what it is. In times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love, but God's loving discipline is proof of his fatherly love for us. We'll leave that up on the screen because we're going to break that sentence down and we're going to uh, use it as our outline for studying this text. But I encourage you, write that down, memorize it, take a photo, whatever you got to do. I'll read it to you one more time. In times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love, but God's loving discipline is proof of his fatherly love for us. Well, let's look at the first part of that. In times of difficulty, the people of Judah had a problem. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 1 says this, In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. The tiny nation of Judah was all that was left of Israel's once great and vast empire. We began our study of First and Second Kings by looking at Israel at the height of their prosperity and power, where their borders extended much farther than they do now at this time that we read about. Now, as a result of sin and selfishness, idolatry and evil, little Judah is all that is left of Israel's once vast empire. And Judah finds themselves stuck in the middle of the conflicts that are going on in the region between the great world powers of that time. They had the Egyptians to the south and they had the Assyrians to the north. But something happened in 612 BC that changed the geopolitical picture and it changed things for Israel. Here's what happened. In 612 BC, the Babylonian Empire conquered the Assyrian Empire. Babylon became the new superpower on the block, and they had a, this king, Nebuchadnezzar. After defeating the Assyrians, though, here's what happened. The Babylonians turned their attention towards Egypt, and the people of Judah found themselves right in the middle of this conflict between these two great powers. Well, in 605 BC... Babylon defeated Egypt. Babylon defeated Egypt. Now that was bad news for Judah because Egypt had been protecting them. So with no more protection from Egypt, verse 1 of chapter 24 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar came to Judah and rather than destroying Judah, he made Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, his servant. One of the things Nebuchadnezzar did at this time is that he ordered the smartest, most promising young people from Judah to be brought to Babylon 
to serve him there. And this included a young man who you might have heard of. His name is Daniel. You read about him in the book of Daniel. He was taken to Babylon at this time in this first wave of Nebuchadnezzar coming into Jerusalem. Well, about three years of submission, it tells us in verse 1. After three years of submission to Babylon, we're told there in verse 1 that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. Sounds like a pretty good move, right? I mean, he's fighting for Judean independence against this evil empire of Babylon who wants to control their country. Uh, of course, this is the right thing to do, don't you think? Except it wasn't the right thing to do at all. Here's why. Look at what it says in verse 2. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of Syrians and bands of Moabites and bands of Ammonites. These are all people groups who lived within the Babylonian Empire. And he sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Did you catch that? Who sent the bands of Chaldeans and other people to fight against Judah? The Lord sent them. And why did the Lord send them? To destroy Judah. That's kind of weird, right? And, and notice, it was according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by the prophets. You see, at this time, the prophet on the scene was somebody you've probably also heard of. His name was Jeremiah. And if you read the book of Jeremiah, here's what you'll find. God was telling the people at this time in Judah that because of their wicked practices, because of their evil practices, he was going to judge them as a nation by having the Babylonians come in and conquer them and rule over them. And Jeremiah, his message to the people was this. Listen. God is doing this. God is sending the Babylonians to conquer us, to rule over us. It is going to be hard. It is going to be difficult. We are going to be persecuted. Our faith will be put to the test. But this is God's will for us. He is allowing this to happen in order to wake us up, to purify us as a people through the fires of trial and hardship. So he says, don't resist this judgment of God. Rather, submit yourself to it and learn from it and turn to the Lord in your heart fully in the midst of it. But listen, Jehoiakim did not listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah. Jehoiakim might have been a Judean patriot, right? He was a patriot. He wanted Judean independence. But he was not a man who loved God or walked with God. For example, in Jeremiah chapter 36, we're told that this king, Jehoiakim, he took the holy scriptures from, from the prophet Jeremiah and he burned them. This is not a man who loves God. He's burning the scriptures. Jehoiakim also took Uriah the prophet and put him to death, we read in Jeremiah 26. He also tried to arrest Jeremiah and Baruch, who was Jeremiah's scribe, but he was unable to catch them because they hid in a well and God protected them. We also read about that. In other words, Jehoiakim was a person who wanted Judean independence, but he did not have a heart for God and he didn't care about the will of God. He didn't care about what God wanted or what God was doing at that time through Babylon. And so God sent these armies from Babylon to come against Judah because, it says, verse 3, of the sins of Manasseh. Do you guys remember Manasseh? We talked about him two weeks ago. Manasseh, and here's why it says, verse 4, he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Now that's interesting, and here's why. Because Manasseh, at this point, has been dead for 50 years. 50 years after this guy died, and there, we're still talking about his sins. 
If you remember, here's another interesting thing. If you remember from our study two weeks ago in which we looked at King Manasseh, here's what you might remember. He was a wicked king who did wicked stuff, but at the end of his life, he repented and turned to the Lord. Kind of a deathbed conversion, right? He repented and turned to the Lord. I believe that you can expect to see Manasseh in heaven. And yet, even though his soul was saved, even though God forgave his sins, the repercussions of the stuff that he did, the stuff that he brought into Israel, it didn't just disappear when he got forgiven of his sins. The blood that he shed, the people he influenced to do evil things, the, the culture he introduced into Judah, those things affected generations of people. This is the thing about sin. It never happens in a vacuum. When one person sins, that person's actions don't only affect them. They affect a lot of other people as well. And so even though Manasseh repented at the end of his life, the repercussions of what he did affected many people for generations to come. Friends, this is why I always tell you this. I always tell you, sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Maybe you say, well, why is it wrong to do that thing? Is it wrong because the Bible says don't do it? No, no, no. The Bible says don't do it because it is bad, meaning it's bad for you. So sin isn't bad because it's forbidden. Sin is forbidden because it's bad. Sin always leads to pain and destruction. It, it, not always right away, but eventually, yes. And the reason God instructs us saying, don't do this or do this, right? The reason God gives instructions telling us what to do and what not to do, it isn't because he's some kind of cosmic killjoy who just has nothing better to do but just sit up there in heaven and make sure that nobody down there is having any fun, right? No, it's because he is a loving father who wants what is best for you. Sometimes when people are tempted to do things that they themselves know are wrong, you know what they do? They tell themselves. Maybe you've done this, right? You tell yourself, well, God will forgive me anyway, right? So I've kind of, I can do it. I mean, I know it's not good, but God will forgive me, right? Because I know the secret formula. All you have to do is you can basically do whatever you want, okay? All you have to do is do whatever you want and then come back like a day later, maybe even a few hours later, and say, fold your hands and say, God, please forgive me. Remember what Jesus did? Yeah, God. So because of what Jesus did, please forgive me for my sins. And boom, you've got the loophole, right? Now you can get away with anything and not go to hell because God has to forgive you because of what Jesus did. And you know the magic words. So you figured it out, haven't you? And I've seen people do this, like for real. I've seen people lie. I've seen people cheat. I've seen people cheat on their spouse and even leave their spouse, and they've used this exact logic. But do you know what happens? Maybe God will forgive your sins, but those actions you do, and these actions that I've seen people do with that excuse, they cause so much destruction, not only in their own life, not only in their own soul, not only in their own mind and heart, but they cause so much destruction that affects not only them, it affects everybody around them, and it lasts for generations, just like we're seeing here with Manasseh. You know, the fact is your actions matter. Manasseh's been dead for 50 years, and his actions are still affecting so many people that God says, I have to intervene. I can't just let this continue on. I have to do something about this. What God is going to do is he's going to allow Babylon to conquer Judah and destroy Jerusalem. Now, for the Jewish people, this is something they thought God would never 
do. Never allow this to happen. This is unthinkable. Surely God wouldn't let the bad guys win, would he? And yet this is exactly what God was going to do. Why? Because God was much more interested, much more concerned with the hearts of the people than he was with the people's country and their buildings. Listen, countries and buildings come and go. They can be rebuilt. But a person's soul is eternal. Remember what Jesus said. What does it benefit a person if they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul? God was allowing Judah to be destroyed and defeated in order to save the souls of the people. But here's what happened. The defeat of Judah and the fall of Jerusalem, it didn't happen in one event. This is what you need to know. It didn't happen in one event. It actually, the deportation of the people to Babylon into exile, it didn't happen in one event. It happened over the course of three events over the course of 20 years. Three events over the course of 20 years. So this first attack we read about here against Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, it's actually written about, did you know this, in the Babylonian Chronicles, which are a series of, of written records, which are actually stored at the British Museum in London. You can go and see them, if you can read Babylonian, that is. But you can go and see them. And here's what the Babylonian Chronicles say about this battle when Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem in the time of Jehoiakim. They say that during the battle, a messenger came from Babylon and told Nebuchadnezzar that his father died. So Nebuchadnezzar called off the battle and brought all of his troops back to Babylon for a time of mourning. In other words, the people of Judah were right on the very brink, on the edge of destruction, and God called it back. God gave them another chance, another chance to repent and turn back to the Lord and prevent this terrible thing from happening to them. So what do you think they did? Well, let's find out. In verse 8, it says that Jehoiakim died, and the next king was a man named Jehoiakim. Very similar name, uh, but, but different person. Jehoiakim. Now, he's found in verse 9, and it says there in verse 9 that Jehoiakim continued in the same evil ways. Nothing changed. Nothing was learned. There was no repentance. And so in verse 10, we read that Nebuchadnezzar came back to Jerusalem and besieged the city once again. It says in verse 12 that Jehoiakim offered himself up, gave himself up. He surrendered to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar took him as a prisoner to Babylon. Now, I want you to just make a little mental note of that right there. Jehoiakim was taken as a prisoner to Babylon. That's going to be important later on. Now, this second attack on Jerusalem that we just read about, this took place in 597 BC. And at this time, Nebuchadnezzar, he took all of the treasures from the temple and he deported all of the wealthy people to Babylon, leaving only the poor behind in Jerusalem. Now, this is the time when the prophet Ezekiel was taken into exile in Babylon. And it was there in Babylon, sitting on the banks of the river, that God spoke to Ezekiel and he began his ministry as a prophet. Well, after this, although Jerusalem has now been severely weakened and basically ransacked, most of the people have been deported to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, he still allowed one more king to rule over what was left of Judah as long as that king would basically be a puppet for him and do whatever he, he wanted. That king's name was Zedekiah. We read about him in verses 18 and 19 there. In the book of Ezekiel, you can actually read about the kinds of things that happened in Judah during the reign of King Zedekiah. It was bad. They brought idols into the temple. It was a mess. 
God had given the people of Judah one more chance to repent of their ways, to turn back to the Lord, but they didn't do it. And so we read in verse 20, God brought the Babylonians back to Jerusalem a third time, right? He keeps giving them chances. He says, finally, this is it. This is the final battle he's done. The Babylonians, it says in chapter 25, besieged Jerusalem for two years. That led to a famine, right? No food could get into the walls of the city because it's surrounded by the Babylonians. And so it says in verse 4, King Zedekiah and some of his soldiers, they tried to escape in the middle of the night through a hole in the wall. But eventually, verse 5 of chapter 25, the Babylonians caught them. They killed King Zedekiah's sons right in front of his eyes, and then they gouged out his eyes, and they took him as a prisoner to Babylon as well. In verses 8 and 9 of chapter 25, we read about the final destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in 586 BC. They destroyed the temple. They burned the king's palace. All that was left of Jerusalem was a smoldering heap of rubble. It says in verse 11 that they captured the remaining people in Jerusalem and they deported all of them back to Babylon too into exile, except verse 12, the very poorest of the poor people. They left them in Jerusalem to work the fields, you know, so the fields wouldn't go back to the wild. And they're working the fields for the Babylonians. Where we're told in verse 22, Nebuchadnezzar appointed a man named Gedaliah to be governor over these extremely poor people who were left there in Judah. And Gedaliah, he encouraged the people we read there to live peaceably under the Babylonian rule, to accept the Babylonian rule. But the Judean uh, independence movement, they didn't like that. And so this man named Ishmael, we read in verse 25, he came and he assassinated Gedaliah, the governor of Jerusalem. In other words, there's no leader left now in Jerusalem. There's a handful of very poor people. And it tells us that those very poor people, without any leader, they feared. And so they fled down to Egypt. And you know what that means? That means there's no more Jews left in Judah at this time. None. Zero. Right? There's nobody left. Not in Jerusalem. Not in Judea at all. They all go. There's no more Jewish presence in Judah. Okay, that brings us to the second part of our sentence. In times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love for us. In times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love for us. The people of Judah had been sure that God would never allow something like this to happen to them because after all, they were God's chosen people. He had told them that he loved them. And if God loved them, then surely he wouldn't let something like this ever happen to them, would he? As you can imagine, when this happened, the people of Judah must have been wondering, so does God still love us? Did he used to love us and now he doesn't love us anymore? Maybe you've had those same questions in your mind at times as well in your own life. If God really loves me, then why would he let this happen to me? Maybe he loved me in the past, but after what I've done, maybe he doesn't love me anymore. In times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love for us. In the final verses of 2 Kings, we read something very interesting, though. This is really interesting. Remember King Jehoiakim, the, the second attack against Jerusalem, the king who was carried off into exile in Babylon during that second attack? It tells us there at the end of the book, starting in verse 25, that 37 years later, he spent 37 years in a Babylonian prison. But you know what that means? He's still alive. 
He's still alive. And it says in verse 27 that after 37 years in Babylonian prison, King Jehoiakim was released from jail. And that tells us in verse 29 and 30 that he was given honorable and kind treatment for the rest of his life. Now here's why that's important. Because the fact that Jehoiakim is still alive tells us that God has not given up on Judah. God has not forgotten his promise. Do you remember how first Kings began? It began with a promise that God was going to send a king through the line of David, the royal line of David, who would be the king of kings, the one to establish an eternal kingdom that would have no end, a kingdom of true justice, true righteousness forever. God is keeping that promise. He's kept Jehoiakim although in jail, still alive. And what this tells us is that even though God allowed Jerusalem to be destroyed, the people taken into captivity, God has not given up on them. God is still faithful to them. He still has a plan for them to give them a future and a hope. The people of Judah had sinned, and God had allowed them to suffer the consequences of their sins, but God had not disowned them. Rather, as a loving father, this was his discipline in their lives, which was ultimately for their good. And that brings us to the end of our summary sentence. In times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love, but God's loving discipline is proof of his fatherly love for us. Listen to what it says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, starting in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. In other words, what he's saying is this. One of the ways you can know that you really are a child of God is if God's discipline is present in your life. In fact, the writer says in verse 8 of that same chapter, if God's discipline is not present in your life, that's when you should be worried. You know why? Because a father disciplines his own kids, not somebody else's kids. A father disciplines his own kids, not someone else's kids. You know, sometimes people ask me, how can I know if God really loves me? After everything I've done, how can I be sure that I really am a child of God? Well, one way you can know is if God's loving discipline is present in your life. Now, maybe you say, well, how do I know if God's loving discipline is in my life? What does that look like practically? How do I recognize it if God's loving discipline is in my life? Well, think about this. That word there that's translated discipline, right? The, the original text is written in Greek. The original word there that we translate discipline is the Greek word paideia, paideia. Now, paideia is the same word from which we get our word pediatrics or pediatrician. And, and what is a pediatrician? Well, it's an expert who is concerned with the overall health and well-being of a child. So think about that, what that means for God's discipline in our lives. It, what it's saying is God's discipline is paideia. It is the loving care of an expert who is concerned for and committed to your overall health and well-being. Listen, when my kids go to the pediatrician, the pediatrician, she might give them a shot. That shot hurts. They don't enjoy it. That's not their favorite part of going to the pediatrician. But the reason that doctor inflicts that pain on them is not because she's unloving or mean or callous. It's because she wants to help them to grow up healthy and strong. In order for a child to grow into a healthy adult, they don't only need instruction, sometimes they also need to experience consequences. But they need to experience those consequences in a safe 
controlled environment from people who genuinely care about them. Sometimes we talk about a spoiled child, right? We might say, oh, that child is spoiled. How do you spoil a child? Here's how. By giving them everything they want and never letting them experience hardship. Think about that. How do you spoil a child? By giving them everything they want and never allowing them to experience hardship or difficulty. In other words, we know that the way to ruin a child is by always giving them what they want and never letting them experience hardship. But think about it. Isn't that what so many of us want from God? We want him as our father to give us everything we want and never let us experience hardship and difficulty. And the writer of Hebrews says, wait a second. If you think that's bad parenting for you to do that, why would you expect that God to do that for you if he's a father and you're his child? This paideia, this loving discipline, it's not a petty form of payback. It's not vindictive. It's not retribution. The goal is not to hurt the child. Rather, the goal is to shape and correct and help the child. In Hebrews chapter 10, or Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, it says this, God does this for our good so that we might share in his holiness. Now, maybe you say holiness. That sounds like a bummer, right? Like holiness does not sound like fun. Well, listen, I don't know if you've been paying attention through First and Second Kings, but if you have, here's what we've learned. If we've learned nothing else, this is the one thing we've learned. Sin leads to destruction, sorrow, and death. Holiness, on the other hand, leads to something else. It leads to the opposite. Holiness leads to happiness, joy, and life. You know why God wants you to be holy? Because he wants you to be happy. He loves you. You know, the reason, the difficulties and hardships that God allows in your life, they are paideia. He allows certain difficulties and frustrations, hardships and consequences to come into your life in order to remove foolishness, to root out idolatry from your heart. The kind of stuff that if it stays in there, it will destroy you. It will lead to sorrow and pain. So instead, he lets you experience difficulties in order to form you, change you, shape you so that you can experience greater joy and richer life by sharing in his holiness. It says there in Hebrews 12, verse 11, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So what is God's loving discipline in our lives? We can summarize it like this. It is when God, as a loving father, allows you as his child to experience difficulty and hardship in just the right way, in just the right time, and in just the right amount so as to change you for your good, because he loves you. When you really understand that, it changes the way you think about the things that happen in your life. Just like here with Judah, God wasn't punishing them only. He was dis disciplining them as a loving father who was committed to them. So he let them experience pain and hardship in this time, in this amount, because he knew that this is what they needed in order to break them out of this cycle of idolatry, in order to draw them back to himself. And I'll tell you what, it worked. We're going to talk about this more next week, but it worked. The exile in Babylon, even though it was hard, even though it was uncomfortable, it was one of the best things that ever happened to the Jewish people. In exile, you know, that's when the synagogues formed. In exile, what that means is that they actually began to study the word of God together. In exile, their faith and their identity were tested. For many, it was strengthened as they turned to the Lord. As we see here at the end of 2 Kings, 
God wasn't finished with them. God hadn't given up on his promise to them. He had preserved this royal line, which will ultimately lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the King who will be our Savior. What we've learned here in First and Second Kings is that all earthly rulers, all kingdoms, will fail and fall short. But God has promised us a kingdom that has true foundations, one which will never fail, a kingdom of justice which will last forever, where everything will be the way that it is supposed to be. That is what our hearts long for. That's why we've called this series Desiring the Kingdom, because our hearts do desire this kingdom. And the way to receive that kingdom is by receiving its king. Jesus Christ, the son of David, the one who came to save us by bringing us eternal life so that we could live in his eternal kingdom because of his sinless life, his sacrificial death, and his resurrection from the grave. The ultimate proof that God really loves you, we're told in the book of Romans, is that while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. The reason Jesus came was so that you could become a child of God by putting your faith and trust in him and what he did for you to save you. And the promise of the gospel is that you can put your faith in him, the true king. And if you do, you can be sure that although everything in this world will eventually fail, the day is coming when his eternal kingdom will come in fullness forever. And if you're a child of God, you will be part of that kingdom. And knowing that, it gives you incredible perspective on your life. It gives you incredible perspective on the things that are going on in the world right now. It changes how you view the purpose and the mission of your life, knowing that the true kingdom that your heart desires, it does await you if you have embraced the saving grace of God by faith. So in times of difficulty, we sometimes question God's love. But God's loving discipline is proof of his fatherly love for us. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your loving discipline in our lives. Thank you that you are a father who loves us enough to not just give us what we always ask for, but to give us what we need. And so, Lord, we want to be those who surrender to your loving discipline in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would teach us, form us, shape us. Lord, those things in our lives that, that have the ability to torpedo us, those blind spots we have, Lord, thank you that you are a Father who loves us enough to work in our lives in order to change us for our good and for your glory. So, Lord, may we submit to that. And, Lord, may we be those who embrace the true King and the coming kingdom. Thank you, Lord, that it is coming because of what you did on the cross. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.